try that again. Testing one, two, people can hear me. I can hear myself now, that's great. I hope you had an enjoyable conversation with those around you before uh, we, you got back into your seat for, for the second part of our worship gathering. And we're in the second week of Advent, and so I'd like to read this story to you, and then we will have, we will have the, the story from a member of the Magi as well. So this is reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and I'm reading from the New International Version. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Israel with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They replied, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been wrapped and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I hardly slept a wink last night. Had to get out and stretch my legs. Oh. It was a beautifully clear sky. So I got up and lay outside under the stars. Oh, the stars. Such wonders to behold. Such beauty and magnificence. And such significance. Much more so now. We read the stars and search for the future. For the voice of the universe. And we left in search for a king. It's been quite a journey all the way from Iran, you know. It's quite a trek and I'm not getting any younger. But I wasn't going to miss this. Not for all the riches in the East. In fact, we brought some of those gifts with us. Gifts fit for a king. I brought myrrh. The mother did look a little concerned at first. I suppose embalming oil might seem an odd gift to bring a newborn baby, but I assured them of its rich quality and that only the greatest of kings could be given such a gift. What an honor it was to lay my riches at his feet. I would give more if I thought they were worth what he deserves. What a king he will be. He's got quite the rule ahead of him, that young man. Oh, he may be just a baby now, but I see it in him. Such splendor. 
such humility. I see the rule that the God of heaven has bestowed upon him. It's the very reason that the stars brought, sorry, it's the very reason that God, the God of heaven and earth brought us here to see him in human form, a baby set to change the world. That's going to be a hard habit to kick. I've always read the stars. I'm a master of it. I've written books and produced essays on the very topic of stargazing. People would come to me for answers, and I would rely on the stars to give them what they need. But there is such a greatness beyond astronomy that is unfathomable. I see that now. I thought that the stars were the source of all knowledge and wisdom and failed to recognize the one who put them first in their place. What a humbling and at the same time terrifying experience to live through. What a privilege. I will never be the same again. The very maker of the stars himself why settle for the created when you can worship the creator? Well, I'm so excited to get back to Iran and share this knowledge with my people. Back home, I am seen as eminent. I am the holder of wisdom. But now I've seen this. I've been humbled and I've been shown something far greater by the maker of the stars himself. They won't know what's hit them. Matthew and Luke are each storytellers. They tell the story of a man named Jesus and the significance he had on the world around him. But there's a big difference in the way that these two men tell their stories. Luke spends two chapters in his book telling us two birth stories. The story of John the Baptist being born, the story of Jesus Christ being born. And these two chapters are really, really long chapters. If you're super excited about our upcoming Bible memorization challenge and you want to have a big challenge, memorize the first two chapters of the book of Luke. Together, it's 132 verses long. But it's great stuff. It's full of prophecy. It's full of, of shepherds and songs and angels and memorable lines. But Matthew's story is much shorter than Luke's story. And the specific events about the birth of Jesus are summed up in the first verse of Matthew's second chapter, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. That's it. That's the birth story according to Matthew. Now, there's nothing wrong about Matthew's version. It's just shorter. I mean, if we were going to pick on Mark and on John, they don't say anything about Jesus' upbringing at all. Matthew's just very, very concise kind of like the account that I might have written. Pastor Brad would have written Luke's account, right? <laughs> now, let's not discount what Matthew says here, because he says a lot about the events surrounding Jesus's birth. It's not about the actual birth itself, but what he does include is quite fascinating. He talks about the thoughts and the feelings of Mary and of Joseph. He talks about the significance of the lineage, the family tree that he comes from, he talks about the real threat that King Herod presents to the life of Jesus. 
And then there's this curious story about a group of people called Magi. Now, most of us have gained some information about who the Magi are. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or not. It doesn't matter if you're a committed follower of Jesus or not. You probably have a bit of an understanding of the Magi. And my opinion is we get our understanding of the Magi based on two things. How nativity scenes are set up and the classic carol, We Three Kings. Now, I thought about singing this song to you because I thought this would be extremely memorable. But then I thought more important than being memorable is being merciful. So I've decided to scrap that plan. You can look that up if you would like. It's, it's a couple hundred years old, the song, We Three Kings. But let's talk for a minute, minute about the nativity scene. You've got a classic picture up here on the side screens. We also have our beautiful nativity scene down here below. As a child, my mother taught me the difference between uh, how nativity scenes are generally set up and what we read in Matthew's account. Let's, let's go back to that previous slide here just for a minute. Uh, typically, what we've seen in the nativity scenes are, are we see the magi along with the, the shepherds, with the sheep, with the animals, with Mary and Joseph there with baby Jesus in the manger. My mom kind of created an a unanticipated or unintentional tradition by separating the magi. And she had a very specific reason for doing this. We can show this next slide. My mom sent this to me yesterday. She set up her nativity scene, and you can see where the, where the magi are. They're up and to the right. They haven't quite gotten there yet. And here's the reason. If you look at the, at the story in, in Matthew's account, uh, we find out that he, when, he is vi- when the magi actually reach Jesus, he's not a baby, but he's described as a child. He's found at his home, not at the stable. And when we consider the lengthy journey that the Magi took, as well as the fact that King Herod reaches the point of having all children two years and younger killed, we kind of get the feeling that the Magi didn't appear to see Jesus' first diaper being changed. They arrived much later. Now, we don't know when they arrived. We don't know how long they stayed. In fact, there's a lot that we don't know about the Magi. We don't know how many there were. There could have been two or three or four or 14. We really don't know at all. The traditional view has been that there was three. And the reason why people think there was three is because there were three gifts. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Of course, you know, a couple of them could have brought multiple gifts or maybe four of the Magi decided to all bring myrrh. I think the reason why we don't include four is because it would look kind of awkward in our our nativity scene if there's one magi kind of sitting there with his hands in his pockets, kind of like, I didn't know this was a gift-giving party. (laughs) And of course, if we had that fourth magi there, then the kids would ask question and probably whoever chose to produce and sell that manger scene would be run out of business. So there may have been three, but we really don't know for sure. We also don't really know who these people are. Who are the magi? The the Greek word that we have is translated magi. It's often uh, translated in our Bibles as wise men. We know that they're somewhat clever. Uh, Certainly, they're, they're looking at the stars. God's speaking to them. And we find out in verse 16 of this story that they outsmart King Herod. So it seems like they've got uh, some sort of either, thankfully, uh, obedience to God, but also some wit about them. But we really don't know how wise these travelers are. They don't know how, we don't know how much influence they had on the people around him. We have no documented source that tells us that they were kings. 
We just know their title of Magi and that they came from the East. And having gone to Christmas tales this past week, my thoughts of Magi coming to the East will never be the same because of what our good friend Justin Reese said about the Magi. He said, all wise men come from Toronto. (laughs) Only the foolish ones stay there. Now, by definition, the word Magi means an astrologer or a magician. You can see how close the word magician is to the word Magi. But the difficulty with this information is there's only six times in the entire New Testament where we have that word. And four of them are here in the story talking about the Magi. The other two are in an odd story in the book of Acts where a a man is is called a sorcerer. It's the same word as Magi, but where it's translated in that context as a sorcerer. And later on in that story, he's called a false prophet. So does this mean that the Magi were actually traveling mediums who went throughout the desert with their crystal ball and their magic potions and their incantations? I don't know, but it's possible. We really don't have much information to know who these people really were. What seems most likely is that the Magi had a deep interest in the movement of the stars. They studied the sky. And so when they saw this star, they wondered, as they would have throughout their hobby or their profession, whatever it was, What does this mean? What sort of impact will it have on our world? And so it makes quite a lot of sense, actually, that their interest in the star leads them on a voyage. It leads them to Jerusalem asking a question. And once they get to Jerusalem, they ask this question and they share their motives and we get the best sense of who these people really are. In verse 2, they say, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. They're searching for a king, and their goal is to worship him. That's why they've come. That's why they are traveling. Now, what the Magi say is recorded in our story, but what we don't know is if they're speaking directly to Herod or not. This seems to happen a lot of times in stories where someone says something, and then instantaneously we get a response from that person later on. Whether they meant for King Herod to hear this or not, it doesn't really seem to matter, though, because he responds. Word travels to him. And this question that they ask doesn't just get his attention. The storyteller tells us that it disturbs him. King Herod is greatly distressed when he hears what the Magi say. And there's good reason for this. He's just been asked about the whereabouts of a newborn king, and he has no idea what they're talking about. His approval rating is not very strong at all, and he has a history of making poor decisions. Commentator Robert Muntz explains that Herod's control of the region was shaky at best. So the thought of a Jewish king being born right in his territory gets him a little bit unnerved. And not only him, but the rest of the people, which again makes sense. If you've got a a leader who's overseeing your region, you don't really trust the person too much, and he's disturbed by the threat of a new king, I think I'd feel a little bit nervous as well. And the people of Jerusalem are no different than you and I. They are also disturbed by this news. Now, to Herod's credit, he calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he does some research. They are his Wikipedia of the day. So he asks them, what's going on here? Where would this king be born. And so they go through the scriptures and they come upon the prophet Micah. And and through that, they tell the king 
Well, the Messiah will be born in Judea in a town called Bethlehem. So with this news, King Herod, he reaches out to the Magi and he develops a plan and he communicates this to them. He tells them to go search for the child in Bethlehem. But before he sends them off to go, he asks them, he says, when you find the child, tell me where the child is because I too would like to go and worship him. Now, as readers of this story now, it doesn't take us very long to figure out that this is Herod's attempt to deceive the Magi and to find this child for himself, not to worship this child, but to do away with the child. He doesn't want any sort of threats. So the Magi now know where they're going. They head off to Bethlehem. They have their plan. And the star that they'd seen before continues on ahead of them until it stops over the home where the child is staying. And once it stops, the Magi rejoice. I don't know how long they were traveling for, but I know what it feels like when you're right at the end of a long journey. And so they see this star descend on the house and they celebrate and they reach the home. They see Mary, they see the child. And then in verse 11, we read what they do. They bow down and worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The question we're choosing to ask during this season of Advent is this. What can I give him? Him being Jesus, of course. What can I give Jesus? And this question assumes something. It assumes that Jesus is worthy of a gift. It assumes that he's somehow entitled to something or that we owe something or would want to give him something. And this assumption is shared by pretty much everyone in the Christmas story. It's true of Mary and of Joseph, of the shepherds, and it's certainly true of the Magi. They each give something because they each assume that Jesus is worth their gift. He's worth their sacrifice. The Magi worship a child. They bow down before a young boy. They worship a boy who probably spends the rest of his day napping, feeding, and making the same sort of discovery that every young child makes. But the Magi were convinced that this child was different. This child was different. And so they left their homes, and they journeyed far, and they sacrificed much. And part of their worship includes giving Jesus physical gifts. They give this young boy presents. And why wouldn't they? I mean, it was Christmas after all, right? Or at least they're celebrating it. It's kind of like when you get a, a gift from a family member a couple months later after the fact. And we all know what it's like to, to give gifts or to look at a, a list and to think to ourselves, what should I give this person? What will he like? What does she want? What, will, what sort of thing can I do that will validate the feelings that I have for this person? That will be a good gift. Well, we know what the Magi give Jesus, but we don't know why they gave him these things. Matthew tells us they give him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we have no idea really why these gifts are significant. We can speculate about these things, but we don't know for sure. We don't know if the Magi thought of these gifts on their own during their journey through the desert, if they were kind of, you know, Hey, what do you think a young boy would like nowadays? Uh, 
you know, gold's always good. I mean, we don't know if that was something that they thought up of themselves. Maybe they read something in the stars. Maybe God was the one who prompted them to give these gifts. And we don't know what became of these gifts. We don't know if Mary and Joseph used the murk to kind of trade, to, to provide some, some sort of, of monetary value for the long trip that they had taken. We don't know if they take the gold and they invest it in Jesus' education fund. He's showing great, great progress at an early age. We don't know. Like, we don't know what happened of these gifts. They're never talked about again. But we can guess. We can guess about why these gifts were given. And lots of people have done this over the years. Now, of all the gifts, the gift of gold seems to be the most logical choice for a gift. Most people that I know are always grateful when they receive money. That's usually the thing that they're like, all right, thanks for the check. It doesn't often get refused. And when you factor in the reality that the Magi perceive Jesus to be a king, there's certainly a connection with gold and royalty. So the gift of gold seems like an excellent choice. But what about frankincense? Like, do we ever talk about frankincense outside of this story? What is it? Well, it's a type of incense. And it came from the gum gum resin of trees that weren't native to Israel. So it it was a, a foreign incense, which probably helps us understand it was valuable. And as far as its usefulness, it was often used by priests during their times of worship. And myrrh wasn't all that different. It also came from gum resin of trees. Apparently, gifts that came from gum resin were a big thing that year. It was like the Tickle Me Elmo of 1996. You know, what did we get the kid? Ah, oh, let's get him something, some gum resin or sap or something from a tree. Now, myrrh was usually used as a perfume. It was a fragrance. But it was also used as anointing oil for embalming before a person was buried. So what do these gifts mean? Well, a theologian named Origen, who lived during the third century, this was his opinion. He said, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. John Stott, who was a very influential Christian leader during the past century, has similar remarks. He wrote, the man born to be king was the man born to die. In those three gifts, we see who he is, what he came to do, and what it cost him. Now, many other people have other opinions, ones they developed on their own based on the story, one that's been passed down from traditions such as what Origen believes. Some are going to agree with Stott and with Origen. Some are going to differ a little bit. But for one I'm read, each opinion has something in common. Each theory has in common the idea that the Magi gave good gifts. These were good gifts. I've yet to read anyone to say, frankincense, what were they thinking? Like, that was, that was a terrible gift to give a child. What would Jesus do with frankincense? The, the, the the- I mean, pretty much everyone's conclusion is they gave much. These were excellent gifts. And the reason they gave well is because their giving was connected to their worship. They worshiped Jesus through their gifts. They gave something valuable. The gifts came with a significant cost. Regardless of how practical they were, regardless of how symbolic they may have been, they cost them something. So they sacrificed what they had in order to worship him with their gifts. And whenever we sacrifice something, it says something about what we truly value. 
Now, there are lots of things that we don't know about the Magi, but we do know that they sacrificed a lot. Because they traveled from a faraway land, they showed a willingness to give up their time and to risk considerable danger to get to their final destination. By doing this, the Magi are actually quite similar to other characters in the story. They're similar to to, uh, Joseph and to Mary and to the shepherds. They give up time. They give up uh, their schedule. They sacrifice risk in order to be obedient. They also risk their reputation. For better or for worse, whatever this may have been worth, they certainly angered King Herod. We don't know what this journey did to their vocational level as, as astrologers. I don't know if this, this greatly uh, helped their cause or maybe it did, was detrimental to their reputation. But the truly unique part of this story, out of all the other stories that we come upon this time of year, is that they made a sacrifice in the form of tangible gifts. They gave Jesus items. They sacrificed their resources. They chose to give these gifts away instead of keeping them for themselves. And whenever we sacrifice something, it says something about what we truly value. Now, for better or for worse, this is the time of year when it becomes a bit more acceptable for people to question our values. Maybe not in interpersonal relationships around the Christmas table, but certainly from kind of the advertising world, there are are strategies used to dig down in our heart and figure out exactly what's going on there and to make sure that people purchase gifts accordingly to what they would like their heart to be like. So advertisers love to ask us questions that address this topic of sacrificial giving. Have you sacrificed enough? for the people on your shopping list? Have you struck the right balance between how much you've spent and how you really feel about this person? Do you value the people in your life enough to give them what they really want? What about for yourself? Are you giving yourself what you truly deserve at this time of year? It's a similar topic. It's just a very different approach to asking this question. It's based on the same principle, though. Whenever we sacrifice something, it says something about what we truly value. The Magi sacrificed much because they felt that Jesus was worth it. They didn't give for a cause. They didn't give for a tax receipt. They likely didn't give to minimize any feelings of guilt that they may have had. They gave because they wanted to worship. And their gifts became a form of their worship. Now, many of us give gifts to Jesus. Many of us give our our financial resources to great cause. We give money to the church. We give money to people in need. We give non-monetary gifts as well. And there's many reasons why we may choose to do this. Many great biblical reasons why we may choose to do this. But I can't help but think, as I read this story, how often do we connect our giving with our worship? How often do we prepare a gift and present it to Jesus in the same way that we would bow down to him, which is what we see the Magi doing in the very same sentence? How often do we combine our giving and our worship in the way that the Magi do? When it comes to our worship, it's not the size of the gift that matters. It's the size of the sacrifice. Because whenever we sacrifice something, it says something about what we truly value. 
We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Our intention as a church is every time we provide an opportunity to give financial gifts to the Lord and to the church, that we connect that to our worship. But we realize that that doesn't always happen. I know for myself, uh, I give through an automated schedule. And so sometimes that can very much just look like a, a number on the computer. It can look like a number and a part of the budget. And so we want to take an intentional time to fuse these things together. A financial gift that we would present to the Lord, just as we see the Magi doing, and our heart of worship and devotion for who we see him as, as king of our lives. And so we're going to, to provide an opportunity for you to worship Jesus today by giving a financial gift. Now, I realize that many of us have come here this morning without a plan to give. Maybe you give online at, at a different time of the month. Uh, maybe you haven't brought a check with you. Maybe you've already given earlier today, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be an actual financial gift this morning. What I'm hoping for is that each of us make some sort of commitment. Each of us make that commitment and that connection between our heart and between our money. So it may be something that you already gave a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it's something that God will impress on your heart today. Maybe it's year-end giving that you're planning to give later on this month. So we're going to have a, a bit of an activity. If you have an info sheet with you, you may have noticed that there's a small blank piece of paper there. It's just a piece of paper. There's no writing on it. It's nothing fancy. You could use another piece of paper if you want to. But I, what I want each of us to do is to make the connection between our hearts and our money, money that we will give as a form of worship to the Lord. So I want you to write down how you're going to worship the Lord with that gift that you're going to give. It might be to the church. It might be to another charity. It might be money that you're saying, I'm just going to hold this in my pocket. And when someone asks me for, for help later on this month, that is going to be my form of worship to Jesus. It's going to cost me something. This is a sacrifice that I'm going to make. And I am going to completely connect that as worship to Jesus, just like the Magi do in this story. So I want you to consider what you will give as your form of worship. How can you honor him? And then write down what you'll do on that piece of paper. You don't have to write down your name. You don't really have to write down anything that, that is, is um, helpful in, in understanding what that is because it's just a commitment. It's a way of, of putting down your commitment between you and the Lord. So write down your commitment, then offer it to Jesus as you worship. Our band's going to come up and lead us through, through one song, a song about what it means to surrender our lives to Jesus and to sacrifice for him. And after they do that, I'll come back up and, and I'll uh, give you instructions on what you're going to do with that, that slip of paper. You can rest assured that this isn't something that's going to be read or posted or browsed through or follow up or anything like that. It's just something that you can make a commitment to and you can remember this Sunday and remember this event and make a plan of saying, I'm going to do this in order to worship Jesus with my life. So let's ask the Lord for his voice to be heard as we consider what he would have us do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we listen to the words of this song, as we sing, as we listen to you, I pray, Lord, that you would lead us. Uh, we believe, God, that you speak to us. We believe that you put opportunities in front of us, and we believe that you move our hearts to give to you in worship. And so, God, I just pray that you would communicate that to us this morning, uh, that maybe something we've already given, 
that we would then just make sure we make that connection that that's a form of worship to you. Uh, maybe it's something that we're planning on giving in the future or something else that you want us to commit to. I pray, Lord, that there be clarity in that and that you would give us the boldness and the courage to be obedient to you, to sacrifice much like we see the, the Magi do in this story, all because you are worth it, God. Amen.